Good morning. It is a blessing to have the privilege of sharing with you today. This morning I will be focusing on Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 through 29. So I'm going to read it, and then we can pray. This passage can be found on page 965 in the Pew Bibles. Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house they did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you this morning, thankful for the opportunity to worship together. We thank you for Paul and the worship team who lead us each week. I ask that as we explore this passage, you speak your truth through my words, that they would fall on fertile soil. I ask that each of us would walk away this morning stronger in our faith and in our knowledge and love of you. Is your, in your son Jesus' precious name that we pray, amen. Over this past year... I've been focusing a lot of personal reflection, study, uh, as well as sharing with various groups about this passage, particularly the discussion of the wise and foolish builders. One of the big reasons for this is an increasing conviction that the modern American church is struggling and in many cases failing in the face of an explicitly antagonistic culture. Because we have either abandoned the foundations of our faith, or we have failed to establish a strong foundation in, of faith in our children. Now, this is obviously a broad, sweeping, and complex issue, and certainly more than I can delve into today. But the research compiled in books like You Lost Me by David Kinnaman of the Barna Group is convicting and compelling. According to his research done in 2011, roughly 58% of young people entering college 
are no longer attending church by the age of 30. And close to 40% are not even identifying as Christian. This is one reason why I've been blessed to hear Jonathan's preaching through the Gospel and Genesis series and the Doctrines that Define Us series. And you can go find those uh, at apostles.org under the 9 o'clock tab. We cannot go back to the basics and the core foundations of the faith too often. In fact, sometimes I think we know less about these basic beliefs than we think we do, especially if we've grown up in the church. So this morning, I want us to focus our attention on the importance of foundations. Specifically, we will explore why we need a foundation, what forms the foundation, and what the foundation does in the life of a Christian. Our passage today falls at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Having given three chapters of teaching, Jesus brings it to an end with what amounts to three warnings and a parable tying the whole body of teaching together. First, let's explore why we need a foundation. Obviously, the foundation of a building is what holds the structure up and makes it strong. However pretty or fancy the decorations of a house, if it is not resting on a strong foundation, then all that fancy stuff doesn't matter at all. The house is weak and prone to destruction. My wife and I actually just a few days ago looked at a house and the inside needed a lot of work and the backyard needed a lot of work. But what really stood out to us was the giant crack running down the brick front of the garage. And as we looked at the, at the driveway, you could see where the water was running underneath and undermining the foundation. And that the house was collapsing. The same is true of our spiritual lives. In verses 13 through 23, Jesus explains three reasons why we need a strong foundation. Beginning at verses 13 and 14, Jesus tells us that the gate to life is narrow, but the gate to death is wide, and many take it. In other words, it is very easy in this life to fall into a false and destructive way of thinking and of living. Cultural and societal pressures constantly threaten to draw us away and draw us into the lies of the world, and these lies seem attractive and easy. Just as the doors thrown open wide to houses or businesses, they beckon us in and welcome us. Come and see the fun that awaits you inside. Some of these destructive ways of thinking and behaving seem obvious, and we're quick to point to the LGBTQ plus agenda, or the acceptance of the horrors of abortion by many in our society. Others, however, are less obvious to us, but equally destructive, such as the greed of materialism and the embracing worldly desires for more and more possessions that we think will bring us satisfaction. For some of us, the desire to go through the wide gate is the realization of what it will cost to not go through that gate. Our society longs for the easy over the challenging, the safe over the risky, the comfortable over the uncomfortable. 
We know that serving Christ may result and likely will, will result in rejection by friends, colleagues, neighbors, employers, clients. And the question is, are we willing to lose our material comforts or peace of mind to go through the narrow gate? The second reason we need a strong foundation is the presence of false prophets. Like the wide gates, false prophets invite us in. As Paul shares with Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. From the church's earliest days and through to today, Threats came not merely from the outside, but very often, sometimes perhaps even more often, from the inside. These internal threats are particularly dangerous because they are disguised. They tickle our ears. They tell us what we want to hear. They appear as sheep, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves seeking to destroy us. Simply put, the truth of God is hateful, absurd, and offensive to those who are still in the darkness. Again, Paul explains to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. Earlier we sang in Christ alone. This is one of the great modern hymns and so theologically rich and true. Although in reflecting on the first two songs we sang, those old hymns have so much richness and truth in them as well. But if you listen to some of the most popular versions of In Christ Alone, including the one that they play on the fish, there is a subtle or perhaps not so subtle omission the entire second verse. Now, I've not personally called up any of the artists who perform these, this song and leave out the second verse to ask why they left it out. But it's not particularly difficult to make a really strong guess. It's all about our sin and God's wrath being the reason for Jesus going to the cross. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, 
the gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. According to the world and a growing group within some churches, us being sinful is depressing and offensive. God having wrath is just mean. God allowing his son to die for our sins is cosmic child abuse. No, let's replace the second verse with some woe woes and have it be instrumental. And then we can jump enthusiastically and joyfully into the third stanza where the resurrection is discussed. Remember what we just read in 1 Corinthians. The word of the cross is foolishness and a stumbling block. The big problem, of course, is that we can only experience the joys of Christ's resurrection once we have repented and turned away from our sin. Jesus was only in a position to rise from the dead because he died. And why did he die? For our sin. Please hear me. I am not accusing these artists of being false teachers or claiming that they're not actually Christians. What I am saying, however, is it is easy for all of us to compromise the truth of Scripture in the face of unpopular views and possible backlash. Sometimes the compromise is explicit lies taught, and sometimes the compromise is through remaining silent. Jesus gives us in this passage clues about how to tell the false prophets by their fruit. What are their lives like? Do they reflect the truth that we find in the word of God? Is what they're saying in line with what God teaches in his word? Of course, before we can recognize the bad fruit, we need to know what good fruit looks like. We need a strong foundation to recognize the good fruit from the bad fruit. The third reason we need a strong foundation is the tendency we all of us have to be almost Christian. Verses 21 through 23 should be a gut check for each of us here this morning. The people rejected by Jesus here at some level thought they were serving him, thought they were on the right team. Did we not, they say? Did we not go to church? Did we not send our kids to Christian schools? Did we not vote the right way? Did we not post clever and witty Christian memes on social media? Yet Jesus will say, go away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Have I truly submitted to the truth of Scripture? Have I truly submitted to King Jesus and not the picture of who I want or think Jesus should be? Have each one of you. Have I built my theology, life, and faith on what Scripture reveals of Jesus and his ways and his truth? Or have I built my theology, life, and faith on the sand of this world? Interestingly enough, Note that in all four sections of this morning's passage, there is no third way or group. 
There's only two. The way of Jesus that leads to life and the way of the world that leads to death. Many of us, I think, myself included, want Jesus plus the world. However, as C.S. Lewis says, if we accept heaven, we should not be able to retain even the smallest and most intimate souvenirs of hell. Or as Jesus tells us, we cannot serve both God and mammon. Moving into the parable of the two builders, let's take a moment and explore what forms the foundation. And here again, we have three points. Jesus says that the wise builder hears his words and does them. So let's begin by asking the question of where we find the words of Jesus. Obviously, in the immediate context of this passage, Jesus is referring to the Sermon on the Mount. Throughout the sermon, he discusses being salt and light, dealing with anger, dealing with lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, treatment of enemies, chastity, charity, prayer, fasting, not being anxious, not wrongly judging, etc., etc. And there is much there that is clearly an amazing foundation for wise living. However, I think we should also expand the meaning here beyond the immediate context of the passage and apply it more broadly because I think Jesus wants us to see that all of Scripture, Old and New Testaments, are the words of Jesus. Therefore, the wise person builds their spiritual foundation on the entirety of Scripture, Genesis through Revelation. Again, we have only a limited time, so I cannot delve deeply into this, but, the three, but I see three common arguments in our modern society presented against Scripture's view. And usually these three arguments are about one of the hot-button cultural topics. So the first argument against Scripture is, or Scripture's take on cultural topics is number one, the Old Testament is no longer valid for establishing truth because now we have Jesus and the New Testament. We don't need the Old Testament anymore. Second argument is that only the actual words of Jesus are binding on Christians. Sometimes known as red-letter Christians, these people will argue that since Jesus never actually and specifically spoke on homosexuality or abortion or transgenderism, there's nothing actually wrong with these actions. The third argument typically put forward is that writers like Paul can be ignored because the Bible is merely a creation of human beings. And these human beings were flawed in much of their thinking. And we modern folk are now much more sophisticated and understand life so much better. So regarding the first objection, that the Old Testament is no longer valid, I want to point us to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Paul writes, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Several quick points. First, in the immediate context, Paul is mostly referring to the Old Testament, in part because the New Testament is still in the process of being written as he writes this letter. Second, the Old Testament, we're told, is able to make one wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Finally, Paul refers to all Scripture being God-breathed, God's words, the Word of God. Thus, the Old Testament is still the Word of God and is still useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Even after Jesus has come, died on the cross, and been raised from the dead. The second objection, that we only have to actually obey the actual words of Jesus, is also met in part as we consider this passage from Timothy. In Jonathan's three-part series on the Trinity, he explored that each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is fully God, and that one of God's characteristics is unity. Therefore, all three persons of the Trinity are in full agreement about everything. So if all scripture is God's word, and if Jesus is fully God, then all scripture is ultimately the words of Jesus, not simply the ones he spoke as recorded in the Gospels. The final objection that Paul's just some dude is mostly directed towards Paul, I think, because his views of gender roles, marriage, and sexuality are incredibly unpopular in the larger cultural setting today. Therefore, to undermine what Scripture teaches on these topics, false teachers try to undermine Paul as an authoritative voice. But as we learn in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun, and I find it interesting that the same strategy Satan used then he still uses now. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, Peter writes, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures." You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Again, several interesting points emerge here. First, Peter directly refers to the writings of Paul and says that Paul has been given wisdom, presumably by God, as we will see in a moment. 
Second, Peter acknowledges that some parts of Paul's letters are hard to understand. Can I get an amen? Some things still haven't changed. And because of this, false teachers twist his words. Next, these false teachers twist Paul's writings as they do the other scriptures. See, if the ignorant and unstable twist Paul's words as they do the other scriptures, then Paul's words must also be scripture. And if all scripture is God-breathed, as we saw in 2 Timothy 3.16, then Paul's words as scripture must also be God-breathed, God's words, the words of Jesus. One final point that I noticed just yesterday as I was looking through this is that Peter actually, in the final sentence, tells us to make a foundation. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, you know that false teachers are going to twist Paul's words. Take care, be careful, prepare that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Right? Part of the purpose of a foundation is to make the house stable. Okay, so scripture is the words of Jesus, and he says the wise person hears them and does them. So what does it mean to hear? The Greek word translated as hear literally means to hear with attention or to hear effectually so as to do what is spoken. We might say it means to listen to what is being said. Listening is active. It pays attention to the sounds going in. Hearing can sometimes be somewhat passive, can sometimes be somewhat passive. The sounds go in, but we do not necessarily pay attention to them. For example, and this never happens to me, but I hear that some men struggle with this. And if they're watching TV or working on a project or reading a book or whatever it might be, and a wife or child talks to the man, the words are being heard. The ear is doing its job. But as the person speaking realizes that they are not being listened to, they will inevitably ask, are you listening to me? So the wise person listens to scripture, pays attention to it, and believes that it is true and authoritative. The ability to do this ultimately comes from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, changing our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh that are able to receive it. In his book, A Change of Affection, Beckett Cook shares his journey from being a successful Hollywood set designer, an active homosexual man, to giving his life to Christ and the changes that God wrought in him. He says this about reading scripture once filled with the Holy Spirit. Another interesting phenomenon occurred, this time after my conversion. Before that day, if I ever tried to read the Bible, the words seemed dead on the page. I didn't really understand them, and so reading them was boring and tedious. But after my conversion, the words came alive, and suddenly the Bible became the most fascinating book in the world. As I read it, the words seemed to jump off the page and began to make sense. 
It was as if before my conversion, the Bible was written in a language I didn't understand. But after my conversion, I was fluent in that language. He goes on. John Calvin perfectly described what I was experiencing. He said that once the Spirit of God opens a person's eyes, Scripture exhibits fully as clear evidence of its own truth as white and black things do of color, or sweet and bitter things do of their taste. I immediately recognized God's voice in the Bible. It was like picking up the phone, hearing the voice on the other end and knowing it is your mother, or like, or like a baby knowing whether milk is sour or sweet. You just know. As Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He concludes, as I read my Bible, verse after verse confirmed exactly what I had experienced that day. Every word resonated in my mind and soul as absolute truth. The sum of your word is truth, Psalm 119 says. I couldn't put it down. I wanted to know everything I possibly could about the God I had just met. It was like falling in love and wanting to know everything you can about that person. You want to read their diaries, talk to them for hours, ask them a million questions. I was smitten, but infinitely so. Wow. No doubt, like some of you, I have been blessed to know and love Jesus for as long as I can remember. And yet the danger is to grow callous to or to take for granted the amazing gift from God we have in Scripture. As Zach mentioned last week, we can often lose that passion and excitement we once had as we approach our faith. Therefore, each of us must ask this morning if we are going to Scripture and listening to what Jesus has to say to us in it. Also, please note that we need to be praying for the lost, our friends and neighbors who do not have the Holy Spirit. As Beckett Cook mentions, the words of Jesus are gibberish to those who are still in spiritual darkness. They cannot hear. They are the husband so focused on what he is doing that he does not listen to what the wife is saying. Third, we must do the words of Jesus. Again, this is something that can only happen when we have been changed by the Holy Spirit and given a new heart, mind, and desire to serve him. Towards the end of his book, Beckett Cook says, But upon my conversion, God gave me a new heart and put his spirit in me, and that transformed what my heart wanted. Now my heart wants to be obedient to God, not conform to the passions of my former ignorance. In other words, to be holy because God is holy. My heart wants to please him because of the great love with which he loved me. My heart wants to present my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. Finally, very briefly, let's take a moment and see what Jesus says this strong foundation does. First, we build strong foundations because we recognize that storms are inevitable. The question is not if storms will come, but when, or when again. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon the house. Because we live in a fallen world, every single human being will experience hardship, suffering, and storms. Further, because we follow Jesus, we will experience suffering and persecution from the powers and principalities of this dark world. Jesus tells us that all men will hate us because of him. He commands us to take up our cross and follow him. Paul lists the sufferings that he has experienced following Jesus. The storms are coming. So the foundation of Scripture protects us from the storms. As we hear the lies of the world, Scripture shows them to be lies 
and offers us the truth. The Holy Spirit gives us the discernment to see the error and stand strong in the face of the world's lies and the devil's schemes. Jesus does not promise it will be easy or painless. Some shutters may blow off and some shingles may come loose, but the house will not fall. Not because of how great we are, but because of how firm the rock of Jesus is. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the firm foundation of your son. We thank you that through him we can rest confidently in our faith and in your word. Please help us to see the truth of scripture and through the Holy Spirit to follow it and to obey it. We ask for discernment to differentiate the truth from the lies of this world and for the courage to follow you no matter the cost. Father, we ask that we would go forth from here and be salt and light to the world and that you would use each of us here this morning to share the hope and love of Jesus with each person with whom we interact this week. We love you, and we thank you for the many blessings you have given us. It is in your son Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.